first, you, you look at why are we here? And I would make the point that it's in love, that God wanted to have relationship with people. And love is something that's freely chosen. And so God knew what would be the consequence of giving us agency. He knew what would happen if we were given genuine freedom to act. And that was a choice he made because of love, because love requires that type of agency and that type of freedom to choose. Hi, and welcome to Ideology. McMurray here with Drew Stedman, as always, and uh, thanks for tuning in. We're in week three of a mini-series on sovereignty and free will. Highly recommend, if you haven't listened to the last two weeks, to go back and do that first as uh, we're building on some thoughts that uh, we spelled out over the past couple weeks, uh, starting out with some general frameworks and and uh, talking about the fact that this is more of a, a spectrum of thought, you know, outside of straying away from Christian orthodoxy. There is a a spectrum of belief regarding the sovereignty of God and how that interacts with the free will of man to make choices. And uh, there are some historical perspectives that would be considered orthodox that do differ in their finer points. And so we've taken the last couple weeks to spell those out. Last week, looking at specifically Calvinism and Arminianism, as those are two of the more prominent uh, names, at least, associated with this dialogue. But uh, today, going to look at some implications and and some final reflections on this mini-series on God's sovereignty and the preservation of human agency. So, Drew, why don't you take it away? There's a few ideas that are within this conversation, and I think it's important for us to figure out how we hold them together. Um, We've already mentioned God's sovereignty and human free will, and we've covered that the last few weeks. But I want to add into the conversation a few others. One other massive conversation in the background is this dynamic of God's grace and God's love. And I want to be clear, this is not a tension to manage. These obviously go together, but there's an accent in in these systems where we can focus on one and maybe lose sight of the other and how they fit. And I think it's important to keep both of them and hold both of them in view. Another set of ideas in the background is a tension between human responsibility and what I'm going to refer to as transcendent hope. Hope that's just beyond what what we can imagine or see, hope that is fully beyond us. And so how we balance that, on the one hand, if you only have human responsibility, that's a scary place in which to live. But on the other, if you don't include human responsibility, that sure, that definitely does not seem to fit the biblical witness or even our own lived experience. I'd like to highlight a few dangers, even though this is not the focus of our episode today. First is the danger of minimizing God's sovereignty. And this can be a what I would consider to be a cheap temptation in the conversation where we want to create space for genuine human agency, so our solution is to minimize the sovereignty of God. And I believe in the end, this leads to anxiety and hopelessness. And the reason for that is if God is not sovereignly in control of the future, then how do I have any guarantee of the future? Is Christ ever going to return in that environment? Is there any guarantee of God's victory over evil in the world? And, and the list could go on and on and on. Um, this is why I disagree so sharply with process theology, for those of you who are familiar with that relatively modern system of theology that, that is a, a small minority, but still can loom large in some of these conversations. But any system of theology that minimizes the sovereignty of God, I think it's a trade-off where we lose far more than we gain, and ultimately I don't think is faithful to the faith that we have received. But the second danger is losing the impetus for human responsibility. 
And this is where we can swing too far the other way, where in an effort to elevate the sovereignty of God and his control over all things, we can slowly fall into fatalism or some form of fatalism in which we don't believe our actions really matter in the end because they've already been chosen or preordained by God. And once again, this does not fit the biblical story. This does not fit the exhortations we see all throughout Scripture and clearly is outside the bounds of what it means to follow Christ and take up our cross as his disciple. So I want to be clear. I don't think that either Arminianism or Calvinism or an emphasis on the sovereignty of God or human free will or monergism or synergism demands that we go to those extremes. But I do think it's significant that we keep those in view as a warning light, so to speak, to use that metaphor of driving. And so it's a warning light to say that something's gone on in our theology is where we lose one of those two is where we lose either of those two. Somehow we have to figure out a way to hold them together in tension. And that's the key, and, and you'll probably get tired of this refrain for our repeat listeners, but as humans, we tend to have a difficult time of holding complex issues in tension in our minds. It's far easier to try to land the plane and, and have a watertight, systematic theology in this in this case, or or some clear, definitive philosophy of life, or so on. And when we find concepts that seem to have somewhat equal treatment in the scriptures, not you know minor doctrinal issues that only have one or two references in the scriptures, but clear themes that seem to be threaded throughout the whole meta-narrative of the scripture and seem to stand juxtaposed against one another, we can't just simply discard one half of the argument over the other. Uh, but the faithful witness of Scripture or the faithful reader of Scripture would pay attention to the weight that the Scriptures give to various doctrinal ideas or ideas about God or mankind or sin and th the major Orthodox doctrines. And the Trinity would be one. Uh, you see the Church grappling throughout the centuries with how uh, Jesus could be a member of the Trinity in his humanity or the role of the Spirit in the Trinity. The Incarnation would be another, how can Jesus be simultaneously fully God and fully man? And, and this, this idea would be another one, that, that God retains full sovereignty over the created order and yet preserves the free will of man. And how, how could that possibly be? How can that coexist? And, and again, we would encourage a deep wrestling with the totality of the scriptures. I know a lot of my Arminian friends don't spend a lot of time in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, a lot of Calvinist friends might blanch a little bit at some of the scriptures that seem to elevate the the free will of man or even man's ability to influence God's actions through prayer. Uh, but the scriptures seem to highlight both of those ideas, and, and uh, the, again, the faithful reader of scripture will attempt to humbly hold those in tension and not discard one over the other simply because it's uncomfortable. That's a great point, Mick. And I find these topics are not limited to Christian theology. We can have this temptation maybe to think of them as the obscure musings of monks, you know, in kind of the scholastic tradition where they had nothing better to do, so they just got caught up on these you know, philosophical ideas that have no relevance. But in reality, the, the topics of agency, free will, of what is determined in the world, I mean, these are things that even translate into secular science and philosophy. Right now, according to the tenets of physics or, or other forms of modern science, especially for people who live with a purely naturalistic view of the cosmos, the, the trying to understand agency is really difficult because it doesn't seem to fit. If we are the product of time, chance, and chemistry, then why, why do we make choices in any way? Why would we evolve that capacity? 
And how does it fit within our understanding of the universe? And at least according to the best of science today, there's a very fierce debate on to what extent that mind is related to the brain, because it seems like in some ways the mind transcends the brain, and certainly it's dependent upon the brain, and the physical properties of the brain give rise to the mind, but the mind itself seems larger than the brain and can't be fully understood by the brain. And there's all these other riddles that are all throughout science, and so even as we think of this from a Christian perspective, we're tapping into deep questions about what it means to be human and what is our place in the world, and maybe common sense answers don't quite fit, you know, and whether you're looking at it from a theological perspective or even from a scientific perspective, apart from God, the questions remain and how we grapple with them and ultimately how we understand what it means to be human and what our place is in the world is certainly very relevant. And as I hope to get to today, rather than um, just living in outer space of ideas, to also demonstrate how this can translate to me as a person in my own walk with God and my understanding of other people, because ultimately the reason why we dive into topics like this is not just to have fun over a cup of coffee, but they do eventually filter their way down into the way that we live. And there's plenty of examples of that throughout history where ideas on these types of topics get taken in the wrong direction and ultimately affect the church and affect people in profound ways. To that point, I I can't remember the year, but I think it was in relatively recent history where Stephen Hawking made the shocking statement to the scientific community that everything is is predetermined, that from a purely physical standpoint, as a physicist looking at the laws of motion and the things that were set forth at the Big Bang, that essentially if we had a uh, the computing power to analyze the motion of every quark and atom and muon and everything else that we c- could see perfectly into the future, that what feels like our own self-determined actions are actually predetermined by the laws of physics. And he essentially rendered, and said so, rendered his philosopher friends uh, irrelevant, that the whole discipline of philosophy is a farce. Uh, because of the determinism of the universe. It shocked the scientific community, uh, but his thoughts obviously hold a lot of weight among the scientific community, and it still reverberates today. A a counterintuitive position, but one that that logically follows, again, from some of the naturalistic presuppositions. So let's start with the question of what is freedom? I feel like that should be the beginning of some kind of movie script, but I'm not totally sure. But what do we mean when we say freedom? And something I appreciate from several of the great Reformed thinkers is asking this question, are we actually free? And so whether Stephen Hawking's ask it, you know, from a purely physical standpoint, or it's the great theologians, philosophers, or even sociologists, it's this question, are we free? And let me give an extreme example to indicate this point. If you have a drug addict, here is a person who, on the one hand, is making a choice, so they are doing something in some way. But I think you can make a very strong argument that they can't do otherwise. I mean, that's the nature of an addiction. They are trapped, and eventually that is the the chemistry of their brain, that is their own physical reactions, that is the social environment often that's around them. But it's creating this environment where it's almost impossible to speak of those actions as truly being free because of the way that, in a sense, they've been predetermined by their biology and also by their circumstances. Now, that's extreme on a spectrum. If you're kind of looking at views of freedom or examples maybe in real life, that would be an extreme point of view, but I think it is illustrative of of other ways of our understanding of freedom. So let's look at something a bit more nuanced, my character. I think most of us would understand character as like the soil out of which our actions emerge. And so I'm acting in accordance with my character, but where did that character come from? Was it something I chose? And if you could trace it back, 
probably what you would find is a lot of that has been influenced by my family environment. A lot of that is influenced by my larger social environment. And it's also influenced by past choices. So for example, in my case, I I made a choice to move to Waco, Texas about 20-something years ago. And as a 19-year-old, I had no idea what that choice would entail. And it was probably random. And at the time, I think it was largely influenced by the weather because I was tired of being cold, which is ironic given the temperature outside today. But I I made a series of past choices. and, And in my case, some of those also reflective of my own family, my Father went to to Baylor, which is why I came here. Um, His father went to Baylor, and which is why he came here. And so you can see all these decisions that I'm following that ultimately shape me today. And these past decisions have now set limits on my future decisions. So theoretically, I could up and move my family, and we could move to Maine and join the circus. So it's like I, I am free in that sense. But the reality is that's not within the realm of possibility for how I'm going to behave. And so, yes, I am free, but... It's not that I am weighing every decision in my life equally. I don't have this broad spectrum of possibilities, and I'm choosing them based on pure freedom. Instead, I have a lot of constraints in my life that then limit the possibilities. And in some ways, I'm living out a script that's been set for me by partially my own actions and then partially the actions of others. And though some of them, you could make the argument that my earlier freedom I had the choice to make. You could even go back to that that past choice, and there was constraints there. And so a lot of what it is that makes me who I am was, in, in fact, the decisions of others, the environments that I was a part of. But I don't know that I could say it was my pure freedom that enabled me to be the person that I am, for good or for bad, and how I'm living today. And not to be glib or tongue-in-cheek about this, but uh, you could bring in conversations around natural law into this part of the conversation. And it should go without saying, but sadly today we have lost some respect for natural law. I mean, I can sit here and say that I identify as a streetlight, uh, for example, but um, at the end of the day, I am not free to become a beluga whale or a black widow spider. The My freedom as a person, as an entity, is constrained by elements of natural law. And I think that uh, is a, sadly, a more relevant part of this uh, exploration than it maybe has been in the past. But what what am I free to do within the very narrow constraints that I've been assigned uh, from our perspective by God, by His design and by His will? And then within that very narrow lane, what does it mean, you know, within, again, these kind of social constructions and various predispositions, what does it mean to be free? And I think that the point you raised about social constructionism is widely relevant here as well, where not only do I have my own character or some of the limits of my life, but I also operate within a social system that assigns possibilities and limits possibilities. In every society, that, that's what's happening. So there are ways of being human that have existed in other societies that I, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even wrap my head around it because I have been taught to live and view the world within a social system. And we think of freedom because we might challenge that system. But the reality is, as an American, my ability to challenge the system is limited by the system, so to speak. And I know that can induce a headache. But if you think about it, for as much as I might disagree with somebody else on the limits of what is possible or how to act, there are many more points of agreement that enable us to even have that conversation. So if you were to take me And if you were to take me back in time and drop me into ancient Rome or put me in one of the many native communities around the world, our ability to even understand each other in dialogue would would virtually be impossible. And it's because we live in these socially constructed societies that teach us profound things such as what it means to be a human, what is the world that we inhabit, 
what is the purpose of life or the limitations of what is possible. I mean, thing after thing after thing is actually derived by our social environment. And so once again, how can you speak of freedom in that type of environment? The whole continental philosophy tradition, and that's a whole other topic for another time, a lot of that is advocating for freedom, but then they're forced to grapple with what is freedom and what is oppression. You know, how much of our understanding and very notions of freedom and oppression is based upon our social environment. I mean, it's so circular. It goes on and on and on. But I think it does underscore the point, at least for our conversation today, how do we define human freedom in that type of environment? Now, this also introduces what I find to be sobering and interesting reflections on the reality of human sin. Because in in all instances here, both in my personal character, past decisions, you know, we could look at that as the positive side of my character, maybe a past decision to be honest, and how that affects me today with maybe elements of my character. I also have to grapple with past decisions in my own life where maybe not dealing with something, be it anger or something else, have also morphed over time and affected my character to such an extent that I'm acting according to what's already within me. So that's on a personal level, but from my vantage point, even more sobering on the social level. Because if we construct a society that's anchored and based around human sin, we start to normalize things that lead to human destruction. And we've seen that throughout human history. Once again, thinking about an extreme example, there was a lot of research that went into Nazi Germany looking at how most people were not sadist. They, they did not take enjoyment in hurting other people. Yet somehow a society was constructed to such an extent that it was possible then to have state-sponsored genocide that would lead to five to six million deaths among the Jewish community and all other types of genocidal campaigns that extended as well. Like, how does something like that happen? And it, it led to this phrase, the banality of evil. And they would look at how somebody could go participate in a concentration camp and work their nine to five and then go home and have dinner with their family. And I think that gets to this reality of socially constructed societies that are based around sin. And of course, that's an extreme example that led to tremendous loss of life. But we're foolish if we don't think that that same dynamic is at work in every society, at least to some extent. Even if in our own nation's history, you can look at for example, slavery and the racial mistreatment of minorities or other elements like that, that got so inbaked into the society that it formed a script that forced people to live within it and made it very difficult for others to challenge what was considered to be normal. And obviously that led to all types of oppression and destruction. So once again, it raises the question, with all of this reality, what does it mean to be free and where is there hope? And this is where we can shine a light on the grace of God that breaks into the world. And if you think of these causal realities where my past, my culture, my society limit who I can be and how I can live, if that's all I have, it's a very hopeless scene. But this is the message of grace, and I I think most radically we see this at the incarnation of Jesus, stepping into one of those societies and transforming it from the inside out and creating new possibilities for how to live and how to be human. And that's the grace of God. We see it in the world today, and we've seen that in our own church ministry. We see that on societal levels all across the world. To use an extreme example, a cannibalistic tribe, the grace of God breaking into that, bringing about a transformation is creating new ways of what it means to be human, new horizons of how to live, new standards for what is right and what is wrong. To me, this is the grace of God that breaks in and interrupts our world. And so in that notion, what does it mean to be free? is not that I can choose all choices equally and I have this rational component that allows me to weigh what is right and what is wrong, but freedom is my ability to live in accordance with what's right and what is the grace of God. And so within that definition, I'm never truly free how a philosopher might envision it. 
And I don't think such a thing is possible where I could literally make any choice at any time. But rather, what I'm free to do is live in the way that I've been created and in accordance with the designs of the Creator. And ultimately, that type of freedom only occurs with the grace of God breaking into my life and redoing so many of these things that put constraints upon me. A couple more reflections. I think this whole notion does create some interesting thoughts on how we talk about original sin. And you could look at that at a lot of different levels. You could look at that at a basic ontological level of our standing before God, but you could also look at it on a sociological level or anthropological level. There are these things from the past that my ancestors, choices that they've made that then form the limits of my own humanity and my own freedom. And it's passed down from one generation to the next, and it's both individual and it's also societal. And we've talked about that before, that if it was just one, maybe you could have some type of hope to undo the system. But if it's both, if I'm corrupted internally, and that's my inheritance, so to speak, from those who've gone before me, but I'm also corrupted externally by the system in which I live, there's very little hope that I could ever find freedom from that type of an environment without somebody coming in from the outside and ultimately setting me free. And of course, we'd see that to be the person, Jesus Christ. Second reflection on this is that it gives me great compassion for other people. And in no way should this ever tolerate sin. And I think ultimately we still have to take responsibility, even if largely we are the product of other people or other systems. At some point, we have to take human responsibility. But at the same time, I can also have compassion. If I see somebody struggling with an addiction, I can recognize that it's not that they're choosing this moment by moment, but they are trapped, so to speak. And so there still has to be boundary and at times consequence for the decisions that are made. But I can look at that person with the lens of compassion and recognize that the solution for them is the same for me of we need somebody to break in our world and set us free. Those are great reflections, Drew. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of several cultural references. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre is a 20th century existentialist, and he grappled with notions of freedom a lot from a purely secular standpoint. And he had the famous quote that men are condemned to be free, or men are born condemned to be free, in that we did not choose to put ourselves on earth but we have full agency to self-create. And if you've listened to our podcast for any length of time, we did a book review on Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And this is a, an enlightenment notion you know, that uh, arose out of the Romantics and Rousseau and on through the various branches of philosophy that if we are purely naturalistic beings, then from one point of view, it would follow that we have pure agency. And according to Sartre, man has pure agency. And he did talk about, uh, and I can't remember the phrase that he used, that that we are initially constrained by certain social phenomena like you've been laying out, Drew, but he had a, a high view of human agency that we could rise above that. And he did not speak much to the limits of that agency, which again, it would seem that natural law and some of the other factors that we've talked about would put a damper on that thinking. But he was a pure existentialist in that sense, that our existence precedes essence, and then we can ascribe our essence to ourselves because we are uh, unlimited uh, beings when it comes to causal agency. I was also just finishing up uh, a book, uh, an uh, early 20th century novel, or I guess it was a mid-20th century novel, Betty Smith's uh, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and be- beautiful book if you haven't read it before, but she's 
it's it's kind of a thinly veiled autobiography, and she's detailing her early uh, years in uh, Brooklyn back in the early 20th century in deep poverty. And I just, uh, as she immerses you into the poverty of that era uh, in the specific neighborhood she grew up in, you see the trap of poverty. And as I've read various biographies of you know people who've kind of climbed to the top of the ladder within their various industries, Many times it seems almost incidental that they broke out into that space or um, for Betty Smith, escaping poverty seemed almost accidental. And you see the, you know, the deep endemic traps uh, in things like you've talked about addiction, Drew, or poverty. And and again, I, I think, I don't know if Betty Smith was a believer or not, but you can watch her wrestle with this as she writes this novel, the factors that led to her ability to escape the the cycles of poverty. And if you were not a believer, like Sartre, that man is condemned to be free, what a what a bleak, social, socially Darwinian concept, as opposed to the idea of freedom being within the constraints of the grace of God, God's will and desire for my life, His uh, capabilities and willingness to intervene in my life and, and work all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so I'm grateful for these uh, reflections as a follower of Jesus, that there is hope, and it's not just a a farcical hope or a an unreachable hope, but a hope that is embedded in a deep historical tradition of the testimony of the church, the testimony of the scriptures, and the witness of the Spirit in the church today. So let's get into a second question of what does it mean that we're created in the image of God or the Imago Dei? And I want to take all these thoughts that we're talking about the limits of human freedom, however we understand them, and contrast that to maybe how we could understand God. And to me, God is firstly persons. And I would get that not from the philosophy of theology, but from the revelation that he's given us in Scripture and his own self-revelation to us, is that God is person. And I think as such, that means that God operates with agency. And I would take that to say that God is the only pure agent, where, in other words, he is not constrained by any of the things that might constrain us. He is entirely free to act however he wills. And within that, God is also capable of pure creative act. And so even though, Mick, you or I could operate with creativity, we can create something in the world. We we can introduce an idea. We can take materials in the physical world and shape them. And so we have a lot of creativity. I cannot speak a universe out of nothing. There are limits to my creativity. And once again, I would look to God as not having those same limitations. And so he's purely an agent and he's purely creative in a way that I am not. And then lastly, God has pure freedom. Now, there, there is a debate that can rage in various forms of theology, the question of, can God do evil? You know, if he has pure freedom, does that mean he's free to be evil? And personally, I think that debate rests on notions of freedom that come largely from a modern perspective of the freedom to choose as we will, rather than a historical view of freedom is the freedom to act how you will. And in that sense, God's character, he's self-constituting. His character is who he is. It's the I am. There's none that went before that shaped God or made God who God is, but instead God is simply God. And then he has the freedom to act according to his own character. He's entirely free to live the way that he chooses to live in accordance with who he is. There are no barriers. There are no limitations. And crucially for our concept, there are no other things that have shaped him or constrained him or limited him in the way that he is able to act or to be. You know, and a side reflection there would be, what is what is evil? What is 
truly what is evil. And you might think of it as an absence or a vacuum of goodness, not a thing in and of itself, but just in the same way that dark is the absence of light or cold is the absence of heat, that God can not be a non-entity, that he is he is substance. He is uh, eternally consistent. And so we could spin off into a deep rabbit hole there on the nature of evil. But I, I agree that uh, that argument doesn't hold a lot of water uh, when it comes to trying to describe the limits of God's freedom. And this is what blows me away with all of this, is that God created us in his image. And scripture doesn't exactly spell out entirely what it means in those types of statements. But I would look at that and see that God has imparted genuine agency to us as people. We too can create, even if it's not the pure form of creation that he is able to enact. We too have agency, even if we are not pure agents in the way that God is. And we too are granted freedom, even if it's not the pure type of freedom that God has. And so it's not like his, it's not agency without constraint, but it's nonetheless agency still. We still do have the ability to shape our world. And there is a tension between my individual ability and a communal ability as a society to bring about something. But buried in all those things that we've talked about, there still is something in our choices. There is still something that we do that brings about change in the world. Another way of saying that is events in the future are different because of the acts that we make now than they otherwise would have been. And to me, that gets into our freedom. And of course, you could look at that other forms of biological life. You could say the same way, but I think the difference with humanity is that resides in some form of a specific choice to shape something. And sometimes the way that we intend to shape is not what actually happens, but it nonetheless originates in choices of our will where we are making decisions and operating with agency. Now, for me, this reflection is critical to the entire biblical narrative. Uh, First, you, you look at why are we here, and I would make the point that it's in love, that God wanted to have relationship with people. And love is something that's freely chosen. And so God knew what would be the consequence of giving us agency. He knew what would happen if we were given genuine freedom to act. And that was a choice he made because of love, because love requires that type of agency and that type of freedom to choose. Secondly, I think it shows why we have responsibility is because we've been given something by God. It's a gift. And going back to the Genesis narrative, to tend to the garden, to take what God has given us and to work it out for good in his creation, and in the future, in his kingdom. And then we see what happens when that's distorted, when we take the freedom that's been given to us as a gift and use it to our own purposes and the destruction that causes all throughout the created order and also in our own lives. But then we see God, he's chasing us down, imparting his grace to us to pull us back into that type of fellowship and that type of communion. And maybe my way of looking at that would be that God is sovereign to such an extent that he can absorb our genuine freedom and transform it into acts for his purposes. He can take my freedom to nail his hands to a cross, and he can use my act of doing that that is limited by my social constraints. And, you know, I think of those Roman soldiers that were ordered. They had no real choice whether or not they were going to obey. We don't know how they ended up in the military, but that too probably could have been chosen for them. They were operating within a social construction that taught them that they had to behave a certain way and view this Jewish minority group as a certain way. All of these different things led to that moment, yet God could take that act that still involves some type of human choice, some type of freedom, and transform that act into an incredible act of grace and redemption. And we see then the sovereignty of God at work even using and transforming real human freedom and real human agency. 
And I, I, of course, that can't explain every bad thing that happens in the world, and I'm not even going to try. I, I don't always understand those things. I just trust in the sovereignty of God that he is big enough to take our agency, take our sin, and notwithstanding the terrible consequences of it and the pain that it causes, but ultimately to guarantee our future and to provide us hope. So let me wrap up with this thought. All these reflections today, I think, could fit within a Calvinist or an Arminian system of theology. So I'm, I'm really not trying to resolve any debate, but instead to add layers of nuance to it and, and ultimately to show how does this affect my own life. And for me, on the one hand, I see the freedom that God has given me as an incredible responsibility and something that I don't want to take lightly and even recognize that my choices today set the limits for what's going to happen in the future. And of course, that could be anxiety-inducing, so be careful with that one, and we'll get to the grace of God here in a second. But I do want to be careful. I do want to be cautious. I don't want to be flippant. And I want to recognize what a gift that I've been given. But a second reflection is I also need to be able to, to live at peace. And when I can gaze at the sovereignty of God and His grace that breaks into the world, then I can look at the negative things. And whether that's my own past decisions or the decisions of others, it gives me hope that the future and my own freedom and the freedom of those I care about and all these other things is not going to be limited by myself, by the decisions I've made, by my ability, my capacity to work change. Any of those factors, as relevant as they are, ultimately are not the final say, but it allows me to lift my eyes up and trust in God and trust in his own freedom. And I don't believe that that takes away my agency and my ability to act. But at the same time, it allows me to look at him so that I can live with hope and act with confidence and exercise my freedom in partnership with his Holy Spirit. So as always, we hope these reflections are edifying, encouraging, equipping for you and and, uh, food for thought. If nothing else, thank you for tuning in to these last three weeks as we explore the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, and we will catch you next week on Ideology. Thank you.